Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Dimmitt. Today's guest on the podcast is Simon Carter. Simon is an Australian photographer and has been described by the editor of Rock and Ice magazine as arguably the greatest climbing photographer of all time. He's been in the game for a long time, and if you follow climbing on social media at all, you have likely seen many of his photographs, even if you are unfamiliar with his name. We talked about how Simon got started in photography and about building his first darkroom at age 15. We talked about pursuing full-time climbing in the early 90s, about action versus landscape, Simon's go-to camera equipment, an update on what's going on with the Taipan wall closure and current access issues with the Grampians and what we can do to help. And Simon shared his top 10 climbing photography tips. If you are curious about anything we talked about in the episode, you can find links and resources in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. And you can learn more about Simon and see more of his beautiful photography and videography at www.onsite.com.au. I definitely recommend following him on Instagram as well. I'd like to give a quick shout out to Justin. Thank you for the connection. I really appreciate it. And that's it. Please enjoy this conversation from Down Under with Simon Carter. All right. Hi, Simon. Hey, hey, Stephen. How you doing? <laughs> I'm really well. It's good to see you. We haven't talked about this yet, or maybe I mentioned it in an email, but I had your 2018 climbing calendar on the wall of my cubicle at my engineering job for the whole year of 2018, and it definitely helped me get through the day. All right, cool. cool. Yeah, it's fun uh, to I talk to you. I didn't distract after... you too much. Man. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to talk to you after seeing all those beautiful images. Okay, I think in the 2018 calendar, I've got to say though, they they weren't all my photos. We, oh, okay. Uh, we source photos from other photographers from around the world. Oh, got one. you. But it, it start yeah, it started off many years ago as, as my photography, but then yeah, yeah, it's a it's a long story, but okay. know, eventually uh, it's kind of morphed into a, a calendar that included work from other photographers um, I was able to make a better calendar than trying to do it all myself yeah. okay so and yeah I'm glad it inspired you man that's good I was just watching a couple of your films is the on-site photography is that a collective yes yeah, on-site photography is pretty much me um, okay my wife uh, was helping me in the business uh, until recently and but yeah or else I had uh, assistance um, but yeah for like a film project like that I would just work with different people freelance but yeah on-site photography is not a big business by any stretch <laughs> okay <laughs> well Simon I thought we could start with uh, your origin story a little bit you and I haven't sure. met before and I was just looking at your website and prep for this and reading your about page and a couple of things really stood out to me and the first thing I'd love to start with I just have a note here it says dark room family bathroom age 15 <laughs> <laughs> right yeah okay so yeah, I, I originally people people often ask me what came first, the uh, photography or the um, or the climbing, and uh, to go right back to when I was a fifteen-year-old boy is probably where it started, and and it was actually the photography did come first at that point, and I just really got into photography, I got into the medium of it, 
I started reading lots of photography magazines. And I, well, two things happened. I realized that photographers had the best jobs. I just thought, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I, and yeah, you can, okay, I admit this, as a 15-year-old boy, I just thought, traveling the world, going to exotic islands and photographing beautiful models on the beach, to me, just sounds like the best job. I, I want to do that. And I, I admit to I'm happy to admit to that now in my 50s. Um, but also, at the same time, I actually did honestly become fascinated with the medium of photography, so the whole process. And, you know, back then you had to kind of take your photos on a film camera and then process your films and make prints. And so when I was 15, I built my first darkroom in the family, in the laundry, so you have all the blackout tape and everything. And then later on, I transferred, built one in the, in the bathroom, so mucking around with the chemicals. <laughs> so yeah I just I just got into it and I'd sort of go out at night and take sort of photos in the city by light with a tripod and do slow exposures and and I just started dabbling with the medium so yeah I, I, I really got into photography and I I changed my school for my last couple of years of high school to pursue my photography because there was one mm. school that had a really good course and uh, my parents allowed me to change school I was at a private school but they let me go to the the public school which had this great course and that was where I actually got into my climbing. Um, oh, interesting. Really okay. good outdoor, outdoor education course. Um, yeah, the, the, high, the, the college, the you know, year 11 and 12 of school, this school had this great outdoor education course and we ended up building a, uh, a climbing wall on the outside of the gymnasium and it happened to be right next to the uh, photography department. So <laughs> I, I basically lived in that corner of the college <laughs> going either to the photography department and, and in my free periods or lunch breaks, I would sort of uh, play on this climbing wall that we'd built. And the, the other thing that happened, which is really formative to me was, wow, so when I was about 15, 16, I just started reading mountaineering literature. Mm. So I'd, at the school library, I found, you know, the white spider, that classic tale of the first face of the north face of the Eiger. And Everest the Hard Way, Chris Bonington's epic tale of the, mm. that Everest expedition. And so I was reading books like that and, uh, and I just went, I just, I just want to be a mountaineer. That, that, is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that is the sport. You know, I wasn't really a sporty person. Okay. My nickname was actually Skinny. I was a really skinny little runt. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, so I wasn't into football and stuff like that very much, but I was in with this group of really outdoorsy people and we just did really cool trips so like when i was 16 we flew down to tasmania and did this six-day hike oh, um, wow. down there with a group of friends and when i look back i think that was pretty cool doing stuff like that uh, so i always had this outdoorsy thing and i yeah got into the idea of wanting to do mountaineering but i was uh yeah where i grew up we didn't have mountains mm. um and I just, I just assumed that to be a good mountaineer, you had to be a good rock climber. So I, I kind of got into the rock climbing and I was actually really bad at first. And so that's when the, the climbing wall on the outside of the school gymnasium kicked in and I just was, started training on it um, <laughs> to try and get better so I could one day become this great mountaineer. And I just got really obsessed with rock climbing and being a skinny little runt, it kind of <laughs> suited, suited me really well. And then some of the local climbers in Canberra, they could just see how, 
keen I was, they started taking me under under my wing. Okay. <laughs> and, and that's how I got into climbing. So, yeah, at high school, those two separate passions of photography and, and rock climbing developed by the time I was like 17, 18. And that's how it sort of started. But how, how they ended up combined as a profession is a longer story. <laughs> okay. I am curious, when you were living essentially in that corner of the college, as you say, did you have any sort of a vision at that time of combining the two? Or did that come later? I did have a slight vision, like some of my ph- photography um, I did take of climbing. And I kind of thought, well, yeah, that would be cool. But I, I just dismissed it because no, yeah, there was no such thing as being a climbing photographer back then. Mm. So this is in the 83, 84, I was at, at this high school. So okay. back then there was no one photographing rock climbing seriously. Uh, it's probably even before Glenn Robbins was doing it professionally. Uh, no, maybe not. No, he probably was about then. But I don't... Yeah, there wasn't really many people to look to as a, oh, that's a profession I could do. It's just, (laughs) there's no way you could make a living out of photographing climbing back then. (laughs) So So yeah, what ended up happening is I I finished high school and I I got my first job uh, in photography. And I I got jobs at the Australian National University um, and I was working in some of the scientific sort of departments there and their photography units. Okay. So... It started off in prehistory and anthropology, so it, there's a few skulls and stuff. And I, but I ended up spending most of my time in the darkroom doing prints. And then I moved to the um, biology department. And uh, so most of the time I was in the darkroom, I was printing those uh, DNA gel smears. So, you know, that with DNA, you get that sort of banding, the scientists, okay. where they'd, they'd create a gel smear. And you'd, it was back then, it was how you would sort of see the DNA of a plant or an animal or something. And I'd be sitting in the dark room trying to make prints of these things for the scientists for their scientific reports. So it was either that or um, electron microscope photographs. So basically it just shapes on paper and really badly exposed. And mm. I did this for two years, working in a little dark room, which with all the chemicals and in this tiny little dark room and it absolutely killed my passion for photography because mm. I just couldn't see how it would get from there to uh, this vision I had as a 15 year old kid of traveling the world and <laughs> beautiful models on beaches. Yeah. <laughs> or even rock climbers. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just, um, I gave up. I just completely mm. walked away. You know, after two years, I completely walked away from my dream of being a photographer I actually, I did one year of photography at night school and that just, yeah, completely killed it as well. And hmm. the whole, the whole sort of arty side of photography at that night school was like the people who did really well, they'd take nudes on rocky beaches and, or they'd take studio f- portraits and it's just really cliched, predictable stuff. Um, and I'd go off and I actually did try and combine my climbing photography then and I'd go off and do some climbing photography and it just didn't go down well. <laughs> so I just, I just was really disillusioned. And so after two years of trying to make it in photography in that way, I just gave up, walked away from that job and I went traveling around Europe for um, six months. And I first of all headed to the south of France and went to Bukes and Verdon for a month each and 
<laughs> you know, I watched Patrick Edlanger uh, attempting to do the second descent of Le Minimum, which was like the first 8B plus, or one of the first 8B pluses in the world. So this is oh, 1987. Wow. That must have been incredible. It was. And, you know, and at Verdon Gorge, we were hanging out with um, Christian Griffith and Dale Goddard, um, climbing with those guys. <laughs> and it was just really inspiring and seeing it and being a part of it and living it. And I, I came back to Australia pretty changed after that. And hmm. <laughs> yeah, I definitely walked away from the photography, but I, I really got into the outdoorsy side of things and, and into the climbing. Yeah. You, you ended up doing a Bachelor of Arts in Outdoor Education after you'd gone away from photography. What was your vision for that? What did you hope to, to do for a living? Yeah, so that's what came next. Um, so when I was back in Australia, like, uh, what do I do? And I'd got into the outdoors and... It was a three-year university degree in outdoor education, so the idea behind it is you're using outdoor activities, bushwalking, rock climbing, backcountry skiing, canoeing as activities for taking kids into the bush. There's a lot of school programs that use it. You know, it's big in America, you know what it's about. But the idea is for using those activities to develop uh, personal development outcomes for the kids or environmental education outcomes. Or helping gain an environmental appreciation. So I did a course in that for three years and I thought, yeah, this is great. I really agree with the philosophy of outdoor education. You know, as a society, we've become really detached from the natural environment and that through that, a lot of the problems that we face as society kind of flows. But then at the end of the three-year course, I kind of realised actually as much as I really believe in this philosophy... I think it's really good. I'm actually not probably the best person to be working with kids. I Probably not that patient. Um, hmm. Through this time, I was keeping up with my own personal rock climbing and I was pretty keen to pursue that. And I just realised that I have a tremendous respect for the teachers who do that stuff, you know, it's on school camps and taking kids bushwalking and climbing. It's, uh, you need to be very patient. I just thought that wasn't really best thing for me hmm. um, so I, I, I gave I didn't really try and find work in that area and I ended up living in Canberra which is the city where I grew up and I was just working in the outdoor shops selling outdoor gear you know bushwalking gear rock climbing gear and and I just got more and more and more into my personal rock climbing hmm. so this is like 91 1991 92 so yeah, I was just working and climbing and just got more and more into it. And after about two years of that, I saved up enough money just to go climbing full time. <laughs> and I, I kind of, it, it was coming to the end of exploring my different interests. I just thought, yeah, it's climbing. That's what I want to do. And so with my savings, I, I headed off to Mount Arapiles in Victoria and set up a, my tent and <laughs> and start, started an eight-month stint of uh, full-time climbing, just oh, wow. living off my savings, yeah. So back then, this is 1993, back then that's what you did if you wanted to be a good rock climber. You, you mm. went and lifted a tent, tent of Mount Arapiles. There was a really good full-time <laughs> climbing scene then. Okay. There weren't really... There was a few climbing gyms starting to pop up. But, yeah, if you wanted to be a good climber, you just went climbing. So living a tent. Uh, Mount Arapiles and the Grampians an hour away. It's just amazing place. Was that where you spent most of that eight months or did you travel internationally during that time as well? 
So I spent three months uh, there and then I went to New Zealand for a, quote, holiday, unquote. Um, <laughs> basically just climbing, traveling in New Zealand. And then I went back to Mount Arapiles to my, to my tent there okay. for another three months to, to make the eight. And, yeah, it was a really important time for me, um, you mm. know, just getting better and better as a climber. Um, did some really cool things in the Grampians and, you know, climbing on Taipan Wall and down in the Southern Grampians in the Victoria Range a lot, just pushing my own standards with sport climbing at Arapiles and and just living the life and taking that time. You know, I'd, I'd living in a tent and that was it. I had nothing, no possessions apart from my car and my camera really. And <laughs> and when you're climbing full-time, of course, I, I could never climb seven days a week. I'd climb about four days and then I'd need my rest days and... And that's actually when I started taking photos again. I okay. Just, yeah, on on my rest days, I just started taking photos of my my friends who was like the best climbers in the country, and they were just doing really cool things. And no one else was around to document what was going on back then. Hmm. So yeah, I started taking photos in Taipan Wall and Arapiles, and just got really inspired. I realised, wow, this is just magical this beautiful orange rock and climbers doing really cool things and no one else around to document it and and that's sort of when I had that aha moment it's like well maybe I can combine my climbing photography and or my Hmm. climbing and my photography and and the time kind of felt right because when I did take photos I could send them overseas and uh, usually end up getting published in in rock and ice or climbing magazine or somewhere and I realized there actually was income to be had and so what happened actually was that to supplement my savings I back then you'd live on the dole so you'd get this government money if you're unemployed just enough to get by and so I was getting that I was getting the dole and the government had this scheme to get people off the dole and it was if you had a small business idea you could do this six-week business course and you'd write a business plan and if you if your plan got accepted they'd give you the equivalent amount of money of as the doll for a year while you started your business. So I, I did that and I got the grant and I moved into Natamuk, the town next to Mount Arapiles and started my on-site photography. So this is in 1994. And I just, uh, you know, I bought a fax machine and started traveling, taking photos. And within three months, I published my first rock climbing calendar. <laughs> it's the Australian climbing calendar for 1994. And or sorry, 95, and um, yeah, I published that, and it did much better than I, I'd ever imagined. And, oh, um, wow. And that, that got me through the first year, and you know, since then my whole story has been one, one thing has led to another. You know, the calendar hmm. got me through the first year, and by the third year I was just travelling the country, taking photos, publishing calendar, and had a pretty busy business, and... You know, it led to my first coffee table book, a book on Australian climbing, and a publisher came in and did that. And just one thing led to another. Um, in 2000, I, well, I published my first Australia book in 1998, so it was with the Australian publisher, and then in 2000, Rock and Ice invited me over to America to photograph over there, so that's how I started doing the international stuff. Hmm. And I feel I'm rambling, and you should probably ask me a question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so that's so great. That is so interesting. 
I'd love to ask, you, you know, you mentioned that eight month period of your life being really a significant chapter for you and your development. And I'd love to ask, is there, if you could go back and relive one chapter of that, that eight month time, you know, working on one route or being in one place or one memorable experience, is, is there anything that comes to mind that you would go back and relive again? Oh, oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And <laughs> we can talk about the Grampians and what's happening there with access later, but it's just yeah. tragic. Um, but for me, yeah, and towards the end of that time, so 19, 1994, towards the end of my eight months, I was working on the route Serpentine on Taipan mm. Wall, which mm-hmm. is like the mega classic route to pitch road on, on Taipan. And it was graded uh, 31 originally, like 13D, but it, the consensus was more like 29 or 513B. Okay. And, um, but still the second pitch is like 42 meters long. Um, oh, wow. And it's just absolute classic sort of endurance route right up the proudest part of Taipan Wall. Uh, it looks absolutely stunning. It is stunning. And just to hang out there. And so I'd gained a bit of fitness and everything by that stage, but it still took me about six days of trying the route before I was... I was getting really close and yeah, I just remember the day that I sent it, I, I fell off about two thirds of the way up the route and I just thought, oh, well, this is such an, an endurance route, that, that's it for today. And I belayed my mate for about an hour and then I kind of thought, oh yeah, just, just give it another shot and um, yeah, what have I got to lose? And, and, and as I was sort of lacing up my shoes, it was kind of like, hmm, actually, you know, I should make this as serious a shot because... I'm, re- I'm actually really well warmed up. And it was just one of those things. And yeah, so what's, what are we now? Like, this is 26 years later. I still remember that the moment I stepped off the, the belay ledge, I just knew I was going to the top. It was just like, I was so warmed <laughs> up. I was so, so in the zone. And I was just laughing to myself the whole way up and just having an absolute ball, just being, and I guess, you know, on an endurance route, being relaxed and just having fun with it is, uh, was great. So hmm. yeah, that it's still on the route for like 40 minutes, shaking, working the rests and everything, but that was just so much fun. Now it's a trade route, but back then it was a, it was, it was cool, a cool thing to achieve. Was, <laughs> yeah, that, that still was still a cool a, thing to achieve. Was, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But the route's had, you know, well over a, well over a hundred cents by now, but it's, it's just so good. Um, people hmm. love it. Is that one you've gone back to and climbed again? No, no, I've not, not repeated that. And, it wasn't so long, you know, I did a few other things on Taipan after that, but uh, it wasn't so long after that I got into my photography and, you know, I kept my hand in with my photography for quite a lot of years and I still climb regularly, but eventually that sort of fitness dropped off. Yeah, I'd love to dig into that. So initially the photography came on rest days and that's how it came back into your life and that's initially how you balanced it with, with your climbing. I'd love to ask how you balance your photography with your own climbing now and kind of how that has evolved over the years. Was there a time where, where you felt like some internal conflict about that when you still wanted to be focused on climbing hard and, and you had to kind of split your energy between the two? Uh, yeah, there was definitely conflict there for a lot of years because, I, yeah, I was still climbing quite well for a number of years and, yeah, trying to travel around to all these places to do photography and but I did realise that, you know, it was a choice you have to make in life and that if you're at a climbing area for a week or two weeks and you've got to produce really high-end photographs, you're just not going to be able to do that and 
do a lot of personal climbing. Mm. So I kind of resigned myself to it. And I, I made sure that I always climbed something at an area. I, I thought that's just, <laughs> it's just too much to travel to all these places and, <laughs> and not actually do some climbing. But it was, it was more just to sample some routes. And, and sometimes you need to actually get up on a few routes before you kind of see the angles and get to really know a place and, and so forth. So to try to make sure that photography trips didn't become too much of a, you know, lob into an area, work your ass off for a week and then <laughs> go again without really climbing. You need to slow it down a bit. Mm. Um, my best work has come when I've had more time on trips to balance it up. Okay. Do you plan that extra time intentionally now? Yeah, when I can, for sure. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I live in the Blue Mountains now, which is near Sydney. So an hour and a half from Sydney, we have uh, over 4,000 routes here. And hmm. so I, I sort of just work from home a lot of the time. And then for my personal climbing, I just, you know, I climb a couple of days a week at the moment still. I just go out with my mates and climb. I don't take the camera. Hmm. And then when I go on trips, that's when I do my photography on, on trips to different places. And, and that's when I get to probably climb less, but concentrate on the photography more. Okay. Yeah, so it works. Do you ever take vacation climbing trips? <laughs> uh, well, in more recent years, um, my wife, um, we've, we're now separated, but uh, you know, until recently we were doing trips to Spain you know, once or twice a year because she was, she was climbing really, really hard and was really in, into the, the climbing in Spain, sort of the long, hard sport routes there. So those were sort of more casual trips where we weren't doing so much photography and mm. just more hanging out and helping her and just climbing a bit for myself. Okay. So, yeah. But what I haven't done in many years is just go on a holiday and just sit on a beach <laughs> and just <laughs> not, not climb, not take no photos. Yeah. 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 Just have an actual holiday like normal people. It's, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think I'd enjoy it for a couple of days, but probably after that I'd need to do something. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, I watched a video featuring you called Behind the Scenes, and it was a, a short film featuring some of your strategies and tactics for rigging, for photo shoots, and, and things like that, and just some of your general ideas and, and tips. One of the first things you said in that short film was you were speaking about the importance of becoming a good climber before becoming a climbing photographer. Can you speak to that and why you feel that that's so important and how your own climbing has informed your photography? Yeah, I, I think, um, and I probably made that point in something I've noticed in climbing photography in recent years, because I'd, I'd been climbing pretty full on for 10 years before I combined my climbing and my photography. And as, as I said, it was at the end of an eight month stint of full-time climbing. So I really understood cliffs, the cliff environment, uh, rope work and that sort of stuff. And I'm just a little concerned, I guess, sometimes with what I see what's happening now is you see a lot of people getting into climbing photography, but they haven't necessarily been climbing for very long at all. Um, I just kind of making that point to try and get people to just to slow down a bit and mm. don't think you can just come into climbing photography with a photography background and and work on a cliff um, efficiently and safely. You know, you, to develop the climbing side of the climbing photography equation you, it takes time and experience. I mean, there's a lot of photography you can do from the ground or different places and 
sometimes people bring some re something really creative into climbing photography from a photography perspective but I think there's still an element of you know you need to know how to rig and how to get around and how to be safe and you need to be aware of what you're asking the climbers to do and that sort of stuff so I guess it's just kind of a sort of plea for people to <laughs> take their time you know, hmm. it's funny because you know now climbing photography has become quite popular and every man and his dog has a digital camera now and you know, obviously with Instagram and Facebook and social media and, and the internet, it's a lot easier to get your work out there. And, you know, there's hundreds of people calling themselves climbing photographers now. And it's great. It's, it's, I, I love seeing the energy and the enthusiasm of different people and what different people come up with. Um, it doesn't concern me in the, in the slightest from a competition point of view. Um, I just do my thing. I love seeing what other people enjoying it and and stuff. But yeah, it does concern me a bit just seeing people rushing into it and if it's just a, the next cool thing to do. Hmm. I'm not sure if that answered your question. Yeah, 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 it does. Well, and it's it's interesting. I'll share that film in the show notes for people to watch. It's about six minutes long. And in that film, you rigged one of the most elaborate photo rigs I've ever seen. I think you said you were thinking about the shot for 12 years before you before you attempted it and then it took you three days to rig all the ropes from multiple different cliffs to hang yourself 15 meters out in space or whatever it was. Yeah, to be, to be fair, to be honest, um, that behind the scenes video was a promotion for a new Nikon camera. So okay. I was deliberately trying to find something that I could set up for them that would, would look interesting to, to film. Because yeah. a lot of climbing photography behind the scenes isn't really that spectacular. We're just <laughs> abseiling down, okay. down a cliff and and taking a few shots and it's, it's not really that exciting. So I did definitely look for one of the more spectacular and elaborate setups I could think of. <laughs> yeah. To paint a picture but for there's the a listeners. Lot of, yeah. Go ahead. There's a lot of, uh, yeah, oh, well, for that video, I, I rigged uh, a rope off a buttress, which was about 70 metres away to help pull me out from the cliff. And then I had another rope off to the side. So it was a very exposed, spectacular position, but... <laughs> I guess it does make the point that in climbing photography, you've got to look for different creative ways of rigging ropes um, because you want to be stable. You want to be out in, in space somehow to get a cool perspective. So often looking for ways of rigging ropes to get out and get unique angles. Another thing that was interesting that you shared in that film was that you often wear a chest harness in addition to a normal waist harness for climbing. Um, why is the chest harness helpful for your photography? Yeah, um, good question. I find it absolutely invaluable for my climbing photography. Hmm. And it's, it's weird. I don't see more climbing photographers wearing them. I've seen very, very few. And for me, it's the main advantage with a chest harness is that when you abseil down a cliff and you're, you're trying to get a, an angle on, on someone, it enables you to really lean fully back horizontal. You know, you can even push out from the cliff on your tippy toes and and just stretch out as far as you can from the cliff. And if you've got a chest harness, you can do that and still be quite relaxed. Um, you're not trying to hold this extreme core strength thing going on with your abs. You can actually sort of relax and, and really just hold the camera a lot more comfortably and, and I'll hold that position for a, a longer time. And you, to get a frame up a really nice shot, you've really got to concentrate on what's going on in the frame. and. Hmm. Yeah, I just find a chest harness makes working easier, more comfortable. It takes the weight off and you don't get that 
you know, back in the day, you had to really worry about camera shake. Now with digital cameras, you can crank up the camera speed, but <laughs> chest harness just makes it more comfortable. And I don't know, maybe there's a new generation of climbing photographers out there with the incredible six pack abs and stuff that <laughs> I don't have. But, so, <laughs> but I'm like, I'm not in this to, you know, <laughs> missing out on it's some about. training. It's about the photo, man. So, <laughs> but you know, I realize why it is that probably the reason is that there's just not great chest harnesses on the market. The one I mm. use is probably about 30 years old. Oh, wow. And honestly, it's, this thing should be retired. It, it should have a, <laughs> should be burned. It's, it's not a safety item. You, cannot, you could not do a, a strength test on this thing, but I, I don't use it in a way where I'm you know, relying on its strength. Um, right. This is an addition to a normal yeah, It's an addition harness. to my harness, yeah. waist harness, exactly. And it's rigged that way. So it doesn't matter that it's old, but I've just, you know, I've, I've tried working with some, uh, some of the gear companies, I've, you know, worked on designs with them and I'm trying to get them to bring a new chest harness to mm. the market that doesn't, doesn't sort of ride up around your throat and feel <laughs> like it's strangling you. Um, <laughs> but I guess it's not really a very big market, but I don't know, it's a lot of climbing photographers and, and other people would probably enjoy a, a chest harness that was actually quite comfortable. Can you describe how you rig that for maybe for photographers who are familiar with shooting from a fixed line, for instance? With the chest harness? Yeah. I, well, the, the harness I've got, I just, it goes in with one carabiner um, to my top Juma. So okay. I guess there's two basic ways that people tend to do um, rigging for climbing photography the, for their juma Like it's a lot of people just use a Grigri and maybe one Juma and sort of Juma up and down that way it's a easy safe way of rigging if you want to go down you can quickly con convert to going down and then quickly change to going up but i, I use um i abseil down using an, an atc and i have my top jumar already set up into my chest harness and, and waist harness and then i can just release my left hand and that top jumar just locks off and then I, my hands are free to start operating whether it's to put my other Jumar on the rope or to start operating the camera and what I find good about that is or why I do it that way is um, because when you do need to do a lot of Jumaring maybe to try and keep up with a climber who's moving quickly I find you know a, a double Jumar setup um, a much quicker way of ascending mm. the rope than the you know the Grigri and one Jumar method I find I think that's slower so when, you, when you've got a sprint, maybe five or 10 meters to get to the next sort of possible angle that you want to get, mm -hmm. just having two Jumas set up, ready to race for sprint for a few meters. You know, that's if you're trying to shoot something on the fly, um, or even if you've just got a long Jumar, it's more efficient to, to do it that way, I find, so. Okay. And the chest harness just goes, the chest harness just goes into the, the top Jumar. Okay. Um, yeah. It's each to their own. You know, you just got to make sure what you're doing is safe. Um, and, you know, I think keeping it simple is is good. But I, I use the Jumar method because I just find it quite versatile. And you know, basically, when I set up my rigging, I set up one Jumar into my harness and my chest harness, and it's there for clipping on for safety whenever I need it. Got it. Yeah, and then I bring a second Jumar into play, which has my foot loop. Oh, okay. Uh, for this, you know, this for the stand part of the jumaring. One thing that people will notice as soon as they look at your photography is that it's much more 
you do a really amazing job of um, capturing the landscape. That's something that really makes you stand out, at least as far as in my mind, when I think about all the climbing photography I've seen, you know, you capture the climber, but you also capture these amazing landscapes in the background. Can, can you speak to how you think about capturing both action and landscape and maybe some of the things that you've learned to try to help combine those things in a shot over the years? Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure I could talk about it for ages. I'm just trying to know that one point. Um, <laughs> I that's, guess that's a bad I question. Mean, no, 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 it's not. No, it's not a bad question at all. It's just, I mean, uh, on one level, there's a philosophical thing going on with me because, as I said, I did outdoor education for for many years, and philosophically, I think like the nature is a really important part of climbing and why we're out there. And I'm trying to to show that um, hmm. because I think that's really important. Um, I guess the one the one angle that I guess, like it's kind of a tip, I guess, but what I, what I try and do is um, a lot with my photography is I try and think about the one thing that's really unique about a place or a, a climb or a, a situation. So hmm. I ask myself, you know, what's, what's, what's going to differentiate this place or this climb or this photograph from the next one because you know there's no shortage of climbing photographs in the world and a lot of my photography is based around trying to to show a place like for my coffee table books I'm trying to show the area as as well as just capture some climbing action so I'm trying to think how you know what's different about this how do I show that so I, I try and hone in on the the one thing if it's something unique about the route or the rock, you know, the color of the rock, the rock architecture, hmm. um, you, you know, there's a dike or some graininess in the rock or, you know, you just try and think about the setting. Well, yeah, what is special about this setting and the differentiates it? And then how do I emphasize that in my shot so that it's going to look different to the, the next shot? That's how I often approach a shoot is nail down that thing. Then how do you emphasize it? And, and then really work it and work the angles work the compositions um, think about the light um, and yeah it often does come back to the the landscape because that is the one thing that is often quite different from one place mm. to the next or, or, <laughs> like i said it might be about the rock itself or it might be about the climber you know mm. the, the climber might be the there might be something special or unique about the climber and that might be what you want to emphasize and therefore i might abandon the the focus on the landscape and go more after an action shot or or something i don't know if that makes sense but that does no that's that's fascinating yeah. i'm curious when you show up to a new spot or when you're preparing for a shoot what does that look like what does that process look like of making observations to think about that one thing and planning the angle where you want to rig where you want to be in space the timing of the light, what time of day you want to shoot. Do you mm. go there ahead of time and observe all those things or do you show up and, and just, you know, make decisions really quickly? What does that look like? It depends on the overall situation you're talking. Like if I had a, a week to photograph in an area and try and come away with a couple of photos for a calendar or um, a chapter in a coffee table book or something, there's a, a lot that goes on in, I, I do a lot of pre-planning, but... Mm. Um, and trying to get to know and research the area but when you're on the ground you just you're just constantly looking around and it's often best to get up on a few routes or at least yeah it depends on the physical 
situation that you're faced. But what I often end up doing, I <clears throat> might end up uh, picking a few routes that are potentially photogenic. Then what I do is, you know, you start thinking about the time of day, what kind of light might work best for that. But I often end up abseiling down in, in different places and, and looking through the lens just hmm. when there's no climber there, but just just do some research, get into position and, and see that it, you know, I guess as I've become more experienced that maybe don't have to go physically through the act as much, but you, you're thinking about the angles, the, the distances and, and how the background and the overall composition's going to look. And you can pre-plan things to the, you know, practice and research and take test shots and everything. And, and some of my best images have worked out that way, but um, you also need to be a bit spontaneous and... Hmm. And with that, there's the other side is, well, what are the people climbing? <laughs> you know, what, what, what routes are people on? What projects are going down? And then you think about, okay, well, there's, that person's trying that climb. Well, what's the best way I can photograph that particular climb and, and break it down from that? So, so sometimes I look holistically at an area. You know, I might ask myself if I was to take one photograph from this area, what would the best possible photograph look like? <laughs> and then I kind of try and envisage that and then try and deconstruct how I'd go about building it. An example of that is like here in the Blue Mountains, one of the really cool things that happens here is you get these cloud inversion layers where the, the cloud, uh, often in the morning, the cloud is sitting in the valleys. Okay. And there's, there's not many instant, like that happens fairly regularly, but there's not many climbs where you can actually get a, the morning light with the climber, with a climb and cloud in the background. So I'm mm. always trying to think, about you know, how can I nail the best inversion layer <laughs> photograph? Um, but yeah, other times you're focusing on a particular climber or climb that you're working with and you just sort of deconstruct, how do I get the best image of this? You know, what angle do I need to shoot from to clean up the background so it's not messy? You know, what, do I need to be far away so I can use a, a telephoto lens to throw the background out of focus? Or mm. is there a pos position there where I can use a wide angle lens and really get a nice clean shot showing, you know, the rock, the action and the background. Hmm. So yeah, just get out there and look around and play and think and just spend lots of time wandering around the cliff tops and <laughs> doing research and stuff. Yeah. You mentioned that film that you were a diehard film fanatic for a very long time. I'm curious, what was it about film that you loved so much that you held on to and then what was it that eventually got you to switch to digital yeah so you're talking about shooting film like stills uh photographs on the film back in the old days yeah um yeah i used to be a fanatic of shooting on fuji velvia which was this uh, had this really cool color palette good color saturation compared to some of the other films around and so i just love that color gradient and it's still really really hard to get that on a digital camera I mean you can play around with filters and all sorts of after effects but it never feels quite the same and so when digital cameras came out first of all I mean first of all the resolution wasn't great but the, the colors just weren't the same as really bland sort of color palette and now they've got a lot better and the software's got a lot better and it didn't take long before the resolution of a digital photograph became better than I could really get with scanning mm. a slide mm -hmm. and so yeah it was, it was around then that I eventually uh, gave up on trying to shoot film and and switched I did a few trips where I'd shoot film and digital and then I, I just realized no 
yeah, digital's got it. And I think I was one of the last of the professional climbing photographers around the world at the time who switched over to digital. I was one of the last to uh, hmm. take a, uh, to do the switch. Yeah. I see your daughter there. Is everything that. okay? Yes, <laughs> she's found a big spider. I see it. It's all right. It's terrible. <laughs> It'll be all right, mate. It's not going anywhere. I'll get it. <laughs> she hates spiders. <laughs> Me too. Do you still shoot with the D3? Um, no, I'm, I'm shooting with the, the Nikon Z6 now, which is their new mirrorless system. Okay. The first of the new mirrorless ones that's come out. And I'm really loving that for climbing photography because uh, with the mirrorless cameras, you, the new lenses and just the whole package is just so much smaller and lighter. Um, mm. And I've got a 14 to 35 millimeter lens on that camera now. And, and in the past, I had a 14 to 24 millimeter and it had a massive big um, front element. It was quite a big, heavy lens to carry around. Mm. So it's just, um, yeah, a lot smaller, lighter, and it's very cool to work with. Um, definitely enjoying the, the switch to mirrorless. So <laughs> having been very slow to uptake to digital, I'm not being slow to uptake to the mirrorless system. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to seeing what next camera body Nikon come out with after the Z6 because, um, yeah, it's just, once they improve the autofocus a little bit, it'll be incredibly awesome. Mm. Um, do you typically plan which lens you're going to bring up on the wall or do you go up there and bring a, a few so that you can swap them out as needed? Yeah, these days it's not really such a drama to carry a few lenses. So um, okay. I can often carry, like as a basic kit, I'd carry the 14 to... 35 millimeter then a 24 to 70 and um, a 70 to 200 that's like a standard kit and, and maybe a 16 millimeter because i quite like the the fisheye that's pretty useful in some instances and i can even throw a 300 millimeter f4 in in my bag without it things becoming excessive yeah, in the past my camera bag was a lot heavier like i said so I started off back in the day, I didn't use zoom lenses at all for like the first 10 years because mm. um, the quality was just there, not there when, when you went to a zoom lens back then. I'd love to ask you about routines. With as much traveling as you do, are there any practices or routines that you found that have been helpful for keeping you grounded or that help with creativity or anything like that? Oh, I'm not really sure how to answer that, um, but... I just say that um, I'm not been traveling like massively the last few years. I've been doing, you know, probably a couple of maybe two overseas trips a year and several around Australia. In recent years, my business has kind of kept me busier doing a lot of guidebook production. Um, okay. So I think that's like one reason we said at the start, we talked about the world climbing calendar. I'm not trying to do all the photographs for that myself anymore. I was buying photographs of other photographers for that. My last world climbing coffee table book came out quite a few years ago now, so I'd still like to do another sort of world coffee table book, but with what's happening in the world at the moment, I'm not sure how that's going to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, things have changed a bit. In, I've got more and more guidebooks that we produce through doing publishing efforts. So we produce guidebooks to um, here in the Blue Mountains uh, near Sydney, we do the one to the Grampians, which is 
probably be the last time we'll do a Grampians guidebook. We want something there. We do a small one to Mount Arapiles. We do one to this cliff called Nowra, which is south from Sydney. And we do two guidebooks in southeast Queensland that covers the climbing there. And then uh, we also published the, the guidebook to the Red River Gorge. Yeah. Over your way. So I've been working with Brendan Leader the last few years to produce a really, really cool guidebook to that area, which um, has gone ballistic, actually. So <laughs> that keeps us busy as well. Um, okay. Do you enjoy that process, the guidebooks? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I mean, there's a lot of grunt work in a guidebook. You know, I'd come over to Kentucky for a, a month at a stint and just spend the month just work, walking along the cliff line taking topo photographs. So it's, it's not like the creative action photography that I'm more interested in, obviously, but I, I see guidebooks as um, really important. I think there's a bit of an art to producing a good guidebook because um, to me it's all about conveying information in an as efficient sort of way as possible. So I published my first guidebook like 20 years ago to the Blue Mountains. So over the years I've spent a lot of time working with designers and learned a lot of desktop design stuff myself. And we've kind of developed a design that's a bit different to a lot of other guidebooks that you you see on the market. And, and what we're trying to do is pack a lot of information into each spread in the book. So when you open up the book, you, you're seeing the route descriptions of maybe 20 routes and you're getting every one of those routes covered in the topo photos. Mm. Um, so there might be like six little topo photos because a lot of other guidebooks there and you see this everywhere in the world. It's not just in America, but in some Australian guidebooks, you might have like a massive topo photo and then it's only got two routes on it. And we're talking like a you know, 15 metre sport route. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> really need to be that big. And, and then there might be a it's kind of like an okay action photo and then the route description for two routes on, on one spread. And mm. it's not a very efficient way to get information across because um, if, you, if you're standing at the base of the cliff, you want to open up the guidebook, you want to be able to identify which buttress or bit of cliff you're standing in front of. And you want, you want that information to jump off the page at you and, and then be able to get the description. So, yeah, we really try and pack a lot into each spread on each page of the book. And what it means is that we end up like our Red River Gorge book. It's, it's what, uh, got a copy here. We got, it's uh, 320 pages and it's got, basically the, all of the sport climbing in the entire red in that one wow. book. It's got That's all, incredible. All of, the, all of the south, all of Miller Fork, all of the Muir Valley, and um, most of the, you know, all the sport crags up in the north in that one book. So that's why it's done really well is because you go to the red now, you only need that one book and it's, it's all there for you. And the information's packed in, into it. So, yeah, I do enjoy guidebook production and uh, it's been a massive distraction from my climbing photography um but I, I do enjoy it and i think it's the having quality information is really important yeah when was that red river gorge guidebook published well we first of all did a book called best of the red which was like a selected sport craigs book and we did that in 2016 i think a couple of years ago anyway okay. and and then we did this the comprehensive the red uh, just last year we we got it out in september um, okay. Last year, um, and it just yeah went ballistic. So that sounds amazing. I haven't um, seen it yet. I'm excited to yeah. look through it. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
send you a copy. <laughs> it's, it's, That'd be amazing. It's, it's, uh, Might get me to yeah. go to the Red this year. I wasn't planning on it, but... Yeah, I, I bet it's going to be busy down there this this uh, this fall. Uh, yeah. But I, I love climbing in the Red. I, we've been there like... Uh, I, I must have been there like eight or ten times. Like, it's really on my top of my list for one of the places I go for my personal climbing. Okay. I just love the... Yeah, I just love the rock, um, the quality of the rock, like endurance roots, uh, not too bouldery, um, bit of length to them, but just quality all, all the way. There's definitely more spectacular places to climb in the world, but I just, I do like the quality of the rock there. Hmm. Yeah. With as much traveling as you've done, are there any other areas that really stand out? For climbing or just for visiting? Uh, uh, let's go for, let's do each. How about for climbing? Climbing, yeah, well, definitely the red, um, you know, your, your typical European sport crags like Kalimnos and some crags in Spain. And But I, I actually quite like the climbing here in the Blue Mountains mm. where I live. It tends to be a bit crimpy, uh, can be a bit bouldery. But, you know, we've got 10-metre sport routes to 300-metre-long multi-pitch <laughs> sport routes. Oh, so wow. it's it's a huge area. The, the guidebook we produced to this is... Um, it covers over 4,000, no, 3,400 routes. Oh, my it, gosh. And 56 different areas. So it's a lot of work producing that book. Um, but I just love it. You've got such variety, you know, different aspects. I do love the Grampians, uh, the combination of the quality of the rock and just the environment. I love that still. But obviously we've got massive access issues there, which we can talk about. But I've loved going to places like Madagascar, not so much for the climbing, but just the overall travel experience. One of the coolest trips we did was off to this archipelago of islands, about 12 kilometres off the, the north coast of Madagascar. And it takes about four days to get there, and then you, we stayed in a tent on an island for four days and just went climbing. And there's a really cool setup out there with this French guy. He's got a camp out there, and they'd go snorkeling and spearfish some lobster while we're climbing and then you'd have that for lunch and it's pretty pretty bloody cool that's what i love about climbing it just takes you to these random places on the the planet and you Mm -hmm. get to experience them and it's just so much better way of traveling i find than being a tourist Hmm. well you've alluded to the taipan wall uh, and the grampians access situation a couple times now can you yeah. speak to that? What is the what's the latest news on the closures for the Taipan Wall? Yeah, it's pretty grim what's going on down there at the moment. I'm very heavily involved in the issue because I was publishing the guidebook to the Grampians and I had a okay. strong connection with the place. So when the the issue exploded on which was February of last year, 2019, I got involved from the beginning and I'm now on the committee for the Australian Climbing Association Victoria, which is a group trying to tackle access from a sort of legal perspective. Um, but we're incredibly ha- hamstrung for a whole bunch of reasons. So we're just sort of ticking away, trying to do what we can, putting in complaints where we can, putting in freedom freedom of information requests into the Parks Victoria to the handling of this issue. Uh, and we're finding out a lot of stuff which is really concerning. So we've lodged a complaint with the Victorian Auditor General and hopefully they will actually audit Parks Victoria, but they may not. But basically, um, climbing in Australia or in Victoria at the moment is we're in the middle of this massive land rights issue. 
uh, between traditional owners, I guess, and climbers are the first kind of user group to really be getting restricted due to some of the, the new legislation that was put into place a few years ago. But there's some real problems with this legislation, and I think it's going to create kind of a bit of a, a backlash in the I think it is creating a bit of a backlash in the community, because as much as um, we want to make sure that the Aboriginal cultural heritage is protected and the places which are sacred to traditional owners are, are protected, the way this has been implemented is so extreme and so excessive and so unnecessary and, and it is not protecting cultural heritage. Um, it's, uh, I think it's actually really detrimental mm. and counterproductive and is going to create a backlash which is not actually going to be productive for the broader cause of reconciliation. Um, you know, basically, the, the closure of Taipan, it, it appears that it comes down to some what we call stone quarrying. Okay. So, like, the whole concept of Aboriginal cultural heritage and preserving that is quite complicated. But, you know, things like Aboriginal rock art, that's obvious. You know, rock art, you can usually see it. I mean, there's arguments about art that is so faded that it's invisible and you need special equipment to see it. There's often claims that that needs to be protected and stuff as well. But when the art is visible, it's obvious. You don't climb there. And climbers, there's not been one single incident of climbers damaging visible rock art hmm. in the Grampians. Uh, and Parks Victoria claimed that we had. They claimed that we had put bolts directly into rock art. Hmm. And um, we kind of got to the bottom of this issue. And, uh, man, it's just what Parks Victoria have been doing and trying to get away with is, is really appalling. I think it's completely scandalous. Hmm. They even published a photo on their website with a bolt in some Aboriginal art, but it turned out that the bolt was one that had been placed by land managers. It was a, a cage, part of a cage that was supposed to protect um, some rock art. <laughs> so it, been, you, it was used against us when it was something basically that Parks Victoria or the previous managers had done. So we've been fighting this uh, basically a public relations campaign. When, when the issue started in February last year, Parks Victoria just launched this uh, smear campaign against climbers, basically. And that had the result of enraging some of the traditional owners, but it was basically based on, on lies. And and now we've got uh, some concern with one of the archaeologists. It appears that he might be biased against climbers. He's blaming climbers for graffiti when I, I just can't see how it's climbers that have made this graffiti. It's in a popular area where there's lots of walkers and it's just not what climbers do is it we don't go around spraying names or carving names in the rock it's it's just people you know vandals doing that stuff but we've been blamed for it and um, so we're fighting this public relations battle and we're, we're losing hmm. with the taipan ban that's just come in i mean this is this is just the last the latest thing and it sounds like there's a, a tiny bit of stone quarrying. So, yeah, okay, I talked about the Aboriginal art. We, we just don't touch that. But there is what they call stone quarrying at a lot of cliffs in the Grampians and at Mount Arapiles. And the stone quarrying is where, you know, back a long time ago, the, the traditional owners would be um, sort of smashing the rock to create some flakes of rock for creating stone tools. Okay, okay. So... There's a lot of this chipped rock at the base of cliffs in the Grampians or, and some flakes of rock that have come off, and that's called stone quarrying. And 
there's not really many places where climbing has actually clashed with that. Um, but the Taipan ban is based on just a couple of edges of rock that have been smashed, basically. They're saying the ban on Taipan is a request and it's temporary, and I guess we'll wait and see what happens about that. But I, I do fear that what we're experiencing is highly political. Um, there's a, a lot of reason to kind of be pushing climbers out of the Grampians from a political perspective, not just for the traditional owners, but for the government that's in power in Victoria at the moment. If they can be seen to be doing something about protecting cultural heritage by picking on climbers as a user group without mm. really addressing the, the bigger issues. Um, mm. So I think politically for them, because there's, there's a lot of you know strong feelings that this cultural heritage should be protected in Victoria. It's a very strong feeling in the community. And I, I totally agree with it. Um, but the problem is that if you just implement some of these things on this legislation without really thinking it through and without having proper checks and balances in place, then this is where you've got a problem. So if you shut down climbing in the Grampians and Arapiles without a proper basis for it, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a pretty big backlash in the community. I mean, mm. I already know businesses that are in trouble. It's going to affect as a climber, you know, people live in the area because hmm. of the climbing. Their, their livelihoods, their lifestyle is going to be massively impacted. It's, it's not good. It's not necessary. But the climbing community is not fighting it very well. There's been a lot of internal politicking and infighting and a lot of different opinions as to how the best way to fight for access, but how to do that respectfully. Um, and there's a large part of the climbing community that just doesn't want to fight it at all because if they feel that if you say anything in, in the access space, it's seen as being disrespectful to the mm. traditional owners. And Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a really hard one because, you know, in, in America, it's, it's not the same as a Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it's, in fact, it's quite different, but there are some parallels. Um, the movement is, is so strong that uh, if you speak up against something like th that is seen to be disrespectful to traditional owners it's like you're instantly labeled as racist so a lot mm. of people don't even want to speak up in this space but i the way i see it is that um i see that the current trend is actually detrimental to sort of race relations and to reconciliation uh, i think things need to be done transparently they need to be done with a high degree of ethics and um if a climbing area is going to be closed, there needs to be a proper basis for it. Um, I'm not sure closing down the entire Taipan just because there's some stone quarrying there is kind of fits with that because that cultural heritage, those quarry sites could be easily protected without restricting the whole area. Mm. But so far, Parks Victoria, who are handling this, have just shown no willingness to be reasonable or, or work with the climbing climbing groups that actually represent climbers on a on the access front so it feels that parks victoria are using the traditional owners and the cultural heritage arguments as more of a part of a bigger agenda just to shut down climbing through the grampians mm. uh, and and it can it's spreading to arapiles and it could easily be shut down at arapiles too if they continue on this trend so they're working on a big management plan to the Grampians, which is the first draft of this new management plan is supposed to come out pretty soon. And, and I guess that'll reveal a lot of what they've got in mind. And, but the problem is they haven't reopened any areas that they've 
already closed. So mm. unless parks Victoria start working with climbers and start being reasonable, then I'm really concerned about the trend that this whole thing is on. And we could see some, some you know, the world-class climbing of the Grampians and Rapalis just severely or completely annihilated. Mm. Is there anything that, that myself and the listeners can do to help out? I mean, I'd love to climb at the Taipan Wall someday. It's, it might be the most beautiful cliff I've ever seen. Well, you know, if anyone wants to donate some money to the Australian Climbing Association Victoria, the ACAV, then that would help. But at the moment, we haven't really got a particular legal case to fight. Um, they're not even, Parks Victoria aren't even relying on legalities anymore. They're just relying on shaming climbers out of these areas. They're just saying, don't go. They're not citing regulations or anything. We do want to get our own cultural heritage surveys done of some of these areas. There's always money that could be spent on, on those sort of things to, to check that the surveys that have been done so far are, are fair, because we definitely have concerns about what's going on. What, what I suggest if people are interested in this issue is they go to the website savegrampiansclimbing.org. Okay. Um, there's a really good series of articles. There's over 50 articles that um, one guy in particular has been doing and just putting the issue out there, informing and updating. And on that website, there's a, um, you know, what can we do kind of page. Um, join the ACV, donate. Um, yeah. Okay. I don't know, but what, what, what doesn't help is what we're seeing at the moment is people just arguing and trying to score petty personal points on Facebook over the issue. The, the <laughs> infighting in, in the climbing community has just been absolutely appalling and it mm. has not helped at all. People need to actually be prepared to step up and do constructive work in the background, whether it's helping lodge a complaint or a freedom of information request and stuff like that. So it's, it's very depressing. I am actually thinking about writing a book about how it's, the whole thing has unfolded. Maybe do that instead of my next photography book because it is a major land rights issue, like I said, and it's going to spill over to other user groups and the way that nas our national parks are managed here in Australia. You know, for, for example, one of the things that um, I've heard is now before parks do any work in the national park before they dig a hole in the ground they have to get a cultural heritage survey done and these things are really expensive and, and some of the the traditional owner groups are the ones that supply the people who get paid to do the surveying so there's certainly a lot of work in the the survey area um, but what national parks have got to do now is they might have to spend i've heard they had to spend sixty thousand dollars to get a cultural heritage survey done on a, a a piece of work somewhere that was going to cost $10,000 to get done. Um, so oh, it, it's why when you look at the photos of the Grampians on the Save Grampians Climbing website, there's some signs that Parks Victoria have put up to close climbing. And these signs are on a stand. They can't dig a hole and cement these things into the ground <laughs> because they have to get a cultural heritage survey done to make sure they're not uh, disturbing the ground where they're, you know, basically Parks Victoria are completely hamstrung by these regulations. And, and my only hope in this is that the whole situation is just going to become so absurd and unusable for Parks Victoria that finally Parks Victoria itself will put some pressure on the government to put a more reasonable piece of legislation into, hmm. into place because they just can't get any work done in the park. So all this money has been spent on cultural heritage surveys, but no money has been actually 
spent on the park, on the maintenance of the park, on protecting the, the really significant cultural heritage sites, which they already know hmm. about. Ah, so interesting. And there's also this whole other trend while this is going on to commercialise the national parks. So Parks Victoria are building a walking trail from the northern end of the Grampians to the southern end, 160 kilometre long walking trail that takes like 12 days. And at each day there's going to be a campsite and uh, all this accommodation. So they're, while they're trying to kick climbers out of the park, they're commercialising it with this one walking trail that they want to promote and they're spending $30 million building this one walking trail. So there's a lot of stuff going on politically that just doesn't fit right with me because mm. I don't see how you can justify that sort of commercialisation whilst you're kicking climbers out and, and worrying about a few footpads in the bush that climbers have created while they're bulldozing through the bush <laughs> to create this trail. It's crazy. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's a really disturbing issue and it's... it's Massive, and yeah, I'd like to finish on a, a lighter note if it's possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I yeah, I really appreciate you sharing all that. That's that's really interesting, and I'll be sure to to link that donation that donation link and uh, the website that you mentioned. I'll put both those in the show notes for people that want to learn more. Thank you. Yeah, Save Great Pins Climbing have done a great job. Um, but yeah, on a, on a lighter note, let's uh, let's go back to a little bit more of your photography. I'd love to ask, do you have a most memorable or, or most meaningful photo or, or a, few, a few that come to mind? Are there any that have really stood out over the years? Hmm. Um, well, I, you know, things like my early, well, my shots of the totem pole because I was on the, um, involved on the first free ascent of the totem pole. So that's always been personally uh, really significant. But I guess what I've realized lately is that I'm getting older and some, now that I've been photographing climbing for uh, 26 years professionally, I guess I realized that I've been kind of capturing a, a bit of a history. And, and when you're photographing climbing, I, I guess I realized it's like, wow, I'm actually pe photographing people who are doing stuff at their, often in the prime of their lives, hmm. you know, the, the peak of our lives. And it was like for me, when I was climbing on Taipan, that was like the, the time of my life physically and and having that time just hanging out in a space like that. And as you get older, life tends to get a bit busier and you get more commitments and you, you might have to pay a mortgage or might have kids or a job and all those sort of commitments. So yeah, when you're young and you can go climbing, then sure, do it. Cause you might end up older in life looking back going, ah, oh, damn, those were the days, weren't they? And what I realized is that I've been capturing those days in people's lives now for 26 years. So I guess that's what I like. It's like, yeah, it was, a lot of it's about the place and stuff, but it's also the people and and our connection. So I, I realized, like, one of my f best friends died, like, three years ago. And one of my most iconic images is of him. And, and I just look at that image now, and it's not just about the place. It's about him in his element, in the time of his life, um, in his prime. And so that means so much more, that emotional, um, personal connection with the photo. So I guess what to me is a personally meaningful shot will be very different to what someone else will mm. will pick up out of my work, yeah. But people might have their own personal connections with these places. That's very cool. Before we started rolling, I was asking if you had any advice for young aspiring photographers, you know, someone who's young and driven and determined to become a pro. And 
you mentioned that you had a list of tips. You said, oh, let me bring up my list of tips that I cover. Uh, Would you be willing to, to cover those? Yeah, sure. Let me just go over them really briefly. And you know, if you want, I'm happy for you to share them in your show notes. Um, I'd love to. Okay, cool. Hey, let's do it. Um, so, yeah, I've got my 10 climbing photography tips here. It's, uh, number one is find your vision. Why do you want to do this in the first place? Just, I think it's like going through the intellectual process of what you're trying to do. And, you know, it'll help you be sort of smarter about what you're going about things, you know, whether it's about the action, the place, you know, the questions you ask yourself. Tip number two is be safe. And that sort of harps back to what I said about um, I'm a bit concerned people just really getting into climbing photography really quickly these days when they maybe haven't been climbing for all that long. So just learning about cliff environments and rope work uh, and rigging, that'll definitely help you be safe. And my point number three is improve your climbing skills. So that that's the same kind of thing as it's not just climbing harder, like spending more time in a gym, but actually getting out on the rock, doing some mileage, um, learning rope work, rigging, how to multi-pitch. A lot of trad climbing for placing gear and anchors. Tip number four is about climbing equipment. I've got a note there about that I use static ropes, definitely less because I prefer to use those because of the bounce. And I also, when I'm using rigging, I do a lot of rigging to make sure my rope isn't rubbing, cutting through. Use rope protectors okay. a lot. Yeah, rope protectors, big on rope protectors and rebelays. Um, tip number five, use a chest harness I've covered. Um, tip number six about photography equipment and techniques. Um, it's just like, yeah, getting up to speed on your, your knowing your equipment really. Number seven is understanding light. Um, and with digital photography, the way you photograph is a bit different to what we had to do in the past. Like when you're shooting Fuji Velvia film, which is rated at 40 ASA or ISO, you know, digital cameras, you can just crank your ISO right up. So your quality of light you're looking for is still important though. Um, so in the, in the past, we used to have to shoot in the sun a lot to get action but now you can shoot in the cloud or in the shade and, and shoot action quite happily with a digital camera. Hmm. But yeah, just understanding different cloud types and, and how it affects the, uh, the shadows and, the, and the, the color palette, different time of day. Tip number eight is homework and preparation. So that's where you really uh, learn about an area. You maybe abseil down in a few places to get your ropes and your rigging and you have ideas for angles before the actual shoot. Uh, tip number nine is position, position, position. So, yeah, I've gone into stuff about um, some stuff I developed to get my camera out from the cliff. Like I originally built a photo frame, but now I have a photo pole apparatus, which gets my camera eight meters from the cliff. And you can hold the camera there and I get a little video feed so that I don't need to physically be out from the cliff, but oh, get, interesting. Okay. Out, get different angles. And tip number 10 was just about composition, keeping her eyes in straight, rule of thirds, backgrounds, uh, you know, lens selection, that sort of stuff. And my final tip, don't forget to go climbing. <laughs> I, try, I try and make sure that I keep my hand in with my personal climbing because I do not want to just become a complete spectator in this whole thing because climbing is too much a part of my life and I want to make sure I keep up with that. So, yeah, I try and keep up with my training and my personal climbing do you have a project that you're working on right now a climbing project 
No, I'm just kind of getting back into it a bit, getting out regularly with a mate. We're just trying to get a few routes wide where we're going to, you know, do just some really good days at the crag, repeating stuff maybe we've done before, but doing like just really good days where you just feel you're climbing well. And so I'm not projecting anything hard at the moment. I'm just repeating things I've done before and okay, just getting my fitness and movement going again. Yeah. Simon, I'd love to ask you, is there anything that you've been feeling especially grateful for lately? That's something I ask all my guests. Oh, wow. Um, I'm, I'm, very grateful for so many things in my life uh, like right now I'm going through a separation my wife and I separated seven months ago so I've been going and that that happened uh, not very long before we went into a pretty extreme lockdown here in in our homes mm. uh, because of COVID and so I guess I'm on the other side of that now and I'm I'm realizing where I am at my age and with what I've done and I'm just really grateful I've got an amazing 11 year old daughter um and just loving spending time with her and just loving where I live and enjoying good time with my friends. And yeah, I'm just, I'm really happy about where I am and what I've done so far with life. And I'm just trying to keep, keep it going. Um, I'm working on a, a guidebook to Sydney, the rock climbing around Sydney at the moment. So I've got a fair bit of work on with that and other things and, okay. and stuff. So I'm, yeah, I'm just, grateful to be live where I do and be able to climb still and still be able to do my photography and, and have a business it's it's all good nothing spectacular at the moment but yeah hmm. uh, I'm just yeah very very content so I'm, I'm hmm. yeah grateful for everything yeah. probably doesn't answer your question but sorry <laughs> that's a great perfect answer I was shocked to hear how many routes there are in the Sydney area how many routes are going to end up in that guidebook uh, we'll put about 900 in the first guidebook to Sydney. Um, okay. In the guidebook we do to the Blue Mounds, which is an hour and a half from Sydney, we have 3,400 routes. But the way I like to do a guidebook is not try and do everything in one, like for a big mm. area. So we'll do nine, 900 routes in the, the first one. And, and then I'm pretty sure that will do well. And then we'll do a new edition after that and we'll add more areas to it. Because um, you, you do see a lot that people try and do a guidebook and they just try and cover everything in one guidebook and they never get it finished. Mm. And I'm, I'm a big believer that you've got to finish a project. Uh, hmm. And then you put it out there, you get feedback. Um, and then we'll make the next edition even better. That's, that's what we did with the Red River Gorge guidebook. We did a best of, and now we've got a comprehensive that we're really happy with. And that's what I want to do with Sydney. We'll do 900 routes. Maybe the next edition will have 1500 routes or something like that. But there's a lot of potential, like in the, the Sydney air region has got climbing, Lots and lots of climbing within, you know, 100 kilometres of Sydney. There's just so much stuff. Uh, it's, it's a really good part of the world to live in if you're a climber. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, where can people find you, Simon? Find me on, my, first of all, I guess, is my website. So that's www.onsite.com.au. Okay. Or um, find, find me on Instagram. I enjoy my Instagram. It's um, Simon Carter underscore on site on instagram uh enjoy that um but yeah say hi cool <laughs> are you still making calendars do you have a 2021 coming out next year <laughs> I, i've let it slip because of everything that's gone on okay. this year and 
uh, and I let it slip last year. But I, I do have plans to... Um, I guess this whole Grampians issue, my last uh, 18 months into that issue came out, my whole world has been thrown into turmoil. Mm. Um, it really, I spent a lot of time working on that issue last year and you know, it was not a, a good thing that was going on in my life at the time and I'm still involved in the committee. I'd like to step away from that and, and maybe refocus on business, but there's still a bit of battle left in that area. So. Mm. I would like to do a world climbing calendar for 2022 and uh, I'll definitely let you know if we'd managed to do that. <laughs> I hope you do. I, as I said, I, I think that 2018 calendar helped me get through a year at a, in a cubicle. And uh, I think I kept that calendar. There's that photo of Ashley uh, Hendy on the man who sold the world. Oh yeah. It's just an incredible climb. Is that one of yours? Is that one of your photos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my photo. That one, and that that area is now uh, apparently banned in the Grampians. So, oh, uh, man, it's an indication of what we lost. So, uh, yeah, look, it's lovely to get that feedback on the calendar, and it's it's really cool to know that there's people out there that draw some inspiration or get psyched on a particular route or something from from seeing these shots. It's always nice to hear. I think after that year was complete, I think I just closed the calendar and put that cover photo. I just kept that on my wall for all of 2019 <laughs> awesome awesome <laughs> that's cool man i'm glad to hear it well simon i have uh really enjoyed seeing your photography over the years i look forward to what's coming next from you and it's been really fun to to do this it's been really nice to get to know you a little bit and i really appreciate your time thank you so much Devin. really enjoyed it and good luck with your podcast man good on you <laughs> all right thanks so much cheers see you mate Shake it up, stop when the clock gets 13 Sing one, one, two, three, four Cause, cause, cause No one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it What's in store for the rest of the day? my daughter and one of the things she wants me to do is get my new computer working I think so that she can use my old one but, <laughs> uh, I've, got a lot, I've got a lot of data to get across before I do that so. Has she gotten into climbing at all? She has recently you know, I've never pushed her but she's always had it there like she was on a lot of our trips to, um, to Spain and that and we took her to Klimnos when she was four months old and you know, so <laughs> she's been around climbing since she was born and she was there the day Chris Sharma sent La Dura Dura. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and and I shot the send footage and you can hear it in the in the in the footage you can hear Koga going, Come on, Chris <laughs> <laughs> So I cre- I credit her with getting him getting up the route. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. <laughs> Should have covered that. <laughs>